Good morning, ANC. Waking up and reading a little Bible with. All right, let's do that. Let's look at the lectionary text um, together. I I teased with the first service uh, that I, I I did this. I really no, I don't have to do this because y'all have probably already read ten, fifteen chapters this morning in your early morning devotions. <laughs> but since you're warmed up, I'm sure and hot with prayer. Let's uh, and we won't do this antiphonal. Let's just read the whole thing together, all right? This is from Acts 16, little setting. You remember the missionary journeys in the back of the Bible, the, the anointed book that follows the book of Revelation, the three missionary journeys, the maps. This is Paul's second missionary journey. He, um, he's in northern, what we would refer to as Turkey. It was called Asia Minor at that time, visiting churches that he had established there. And he has a plan for where he's going. He has a plan for what he wants to do. And as he's Moving to the next stage of that plan, he feels something. It's, a, it's an impulsion. He feels something that he described as the Spirit forbidding him go. The Holy Spirit forbid him go. And then an appositional statement. The next verse says, the Spirit of Jesus, which is interesting that the Holy Spirit's called the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus would not let him go. Now, he really didn't know why he was feeling that. He just felt that. And I, I appreciate the fact that we can have those hints. Beekner calls them whispers from the wings of the stage. Those senses that we don't really understand. Now, he didn't get the explanation of that until the night. So that's the feeling by day. And then at night, this is where the text takes up. During the night, all right, read that with me. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We therefore set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace the following day to Neapolis. Boy, y'all just butchered those. <laughs> you just... That, that just about shifted the anointing I was feeling so let's <laughs> let's try that again and try to get it right <laughs> everybody's going to mumble through the names now aren't you <laughs> we therefore set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Thamothrace the following day to Neapolis now I have no idea how to pronounce them either my granddad just said if you hold your mouth right everybody will believe you so I was trying to hold my mouth right we went from there read to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart. Oh, okay. I... Y'all got Thyatiris wrong. It threw me off. I got to... No, I, I love this. Read this with me again. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. She prevailed upon us. The lectionary. One of the wonderful things about the lectionary for you Methodists, Lutheran, Episcopals, and Presbyterians, and Catholics who use it. 
One of the wonderful things about this three-year rhythmic cycle through the biblical text is that, amongst other things, it forces both the minister and the congregation to entertain, to treat, and admittedly, even to deal with biblical texts that we wouldn't otherwise deal with. Now, that's a bit loaded because the reality is you can use a text, preach from a text, and not get near the text. Um, my granddad would often leave church. He was a wonderful saint and a critic of all things preacher. And he would often say of our pastors, I tell you what, if that text would have been a cold, the message wouldn't have caught it. <laughs> Spurgeon, maybe nobly, said, I take a text and I make a beeline to the cross. I get that. But a lot of preachers take a text and make a beeline to their candy sticks. The reality is, fortunately for me, hopefully for you, I'm now in the rhythm of, as kind of an adjunct here, and I'm coming through once every quarter. Um, I liked it early on when I was coming down here because I could do my candy sticks. I've been preaching 38 years. You know, I have those favorites of mine. But now with me coming regularly, I have to dispense with my laziness masquerading as anointing and deal with the text and submit myself to the lectionary, which is good for me. This text uh, makes what I just said very true. It corroborates it. If I were to preach a thousand messages at ANC over the next 20 years, once a week, I am confident I would never choose this text. <laughs> it's true. Now, the chapter before, Acts 15, that text, on the other hand, I would, in the course of 20 years, choose multiple times to be the lead text, and I would in at least an ancillary supporting role, I would mention that text hundreds of times. It's a favorite. It's a candy stick. And a worthwhile one, a worthy one. But I, I say all of that because in this regard, progressive, liberal, pastoral interpreters like myself Progressive liberal pastoral interpreters of the Bible are not much different than our conservative traditional counterparts. And I, this is not a pejorative statement. It's just a reality. All of us, liberal, conservative, traditional, progressive, and I'm like probably you, I despise those terms because they're so freighted and they're so ineffectual, but you probably get what I'm talking about. The reality is all of us naturally resonate, lean toward text that more readily support our sincere sense of what Christianity's central and prevailing truth is. We just naturally are going to go to the text that we feel like support, not our ideas, but what we really think is the heart of Christianity. Richard Rohr, someone that's impacted all of our lives, 
Richard Rohr says wonderfully, and this could be teased out for hours, but Rohr says that the Bible as a sacred text really has a, a three-step forward, two-step back rhythm to it. And while there's a lot in that, I, I, I totally resonate. And I appreciate the fact that in our sacred text, we don't just get the three-step forward stuff. I appreciate the fact that we get the two-step backward stuff. It, it feels more real to me and more inspiring. I appreciate that Peter doesn't just walk on water. He also sits around a campfire and says, blankety blank blank, I don't know him. I appreciate that they're both there. Because the reality of our lives is that the, the gross three and the gross two is really not the reality. It's the net one. And hopefully there's a positive in front of that, right? That's the way that the Bible is. Walter Brueggemann in his commentary on the Psalms says something I think, uh, I, I think contiguous to that when he says that there, there are a lot of ways to categorize the Psalms, a lot of proper ways, good ways, helpful ways to categorize the Psalms. But Brueggemann, my favorite in his commentary on the Psalms, which really wasn't meant to be a devotion, but it's one of my favorite devotionals I come back to, probably used it as an annual devotional five times in my life. Brueggemann said the most helpful way for him to categorize the Psalms, he says there are Psalms of naive orientation, Psalms of troubled disorientation, and Psalms of peaceful reorientation. One of the, I think, best examples of that, that he didn't point out, but I just one time in the reading of the Psalms, I thought about Brueggemann's lens. I was reading through, you know, just the bread, get five and a half chapters a day and knock off the Bible in a year. But I was reading Psalm 21, and it's written by a young David. And his slingshot fells the lions and the bears and the wolves that attack his sheep because God gave him those sheep. That same slingshot fells a giant because God gave us this land. And when you read Psalm 21, you, you read the testimony of a young man. It's, it's so binary. Everything's working out. God's on his throne. Righteous people are defended. Unrighteous people are, you know, summarily dealt with. It was just everything's right in Psalm 21. It's written by this teenage guy that Samuel has just poured oil over his head and it's dripped down onto his garments and he doesn't even wash them for the smell of it. The daily olfactory reminder that he's going to be king and it's just right. And then with no historical rhythm, but I think with a deeply spiritual rhythm, you, you conclude Psalm 21, and I love Psalm 21 chapters of life. I really do. But Psalm 22 opens and it almost gives you whiplash. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God. The naive shepherd boy is now the young man on the run from his mentor. The one that was supposed to, in a godly transition of power, accede the throne and... and champion this young man that he loved and that loved him and now Saul's trying to kill him and with a motley crew he's hiding out in caves and hungry and dirty 
And it's not a year, two years, it's 10 years plus. This is the psalm that another Jewish man chose to lament from his cross, crying, did Jesus. My God, my God, how did it end up like this? Where are you? Psalms of naive orientation, psalms of troubled disorientation. And then Psalm 23, what a perfect example of Brueggemann's point. Psalm 23, a seasoned, grizzled old man reflecting back. Not presently in a three-step forward, not presently in a four-step or two-step backward, but just somewhere reflecting on the net of life. That net that doesn't claim that all things work out for the best, but admits all things work out for it's good. Never promised to be great. Never promised to be the best. And anybody that says that is missing the point. But the wheat and the tares grow together. And in the end, the fruit is it's good. It was worth doing. In Psalm 23 is that reorientation. The Lord is my shepherd. I mean, that's... That's looking back at Psalm 21, at that bright-eyed, bushy-tailed kid that just thought there were going to be no intensive cares, no bankruptcies, no divorces, no failures, just. But an old man looks back and, and says, the Lord was my shepherd. When I couldn't find my, you know what, with both hands tied behind my back, the Lord was my shepherd. And he made me lie down in green pastures, still waters, babbling brooks. It was lovely. But Psalm 23 also reflects on Psalm 22 and says, and there were valleys of the shadow of death. There were Psalm 21 tables spread, but there were Psalm 22 enemies that were there as well. But the resolve is, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and the house of the Lord is a broader canopy than I once perceived it to be. It covers the three and the two, right? Well, to say it plainly and not beat around the bush, this text for me, as I speak to the reluctance of why I would feel reticent to use this text, this text is one of those texts for me that just feels like a two steps backward text really does as a matter of fact when pastor jason first mentioned the text to me a few weeks ago i i i literally before looking at the lectionary said i was kind of you know trying to be team player i said i'll do the lectionary and he said good it's philip and the macedonian call and my first response was reticent reluctance and my second response was a Greek word of four letters that has etymolo etymologically developed in evangelical circles. You know it as shoot. <laughs> because, here's why. This text has the central characters doing something. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke. It has them doing something I do not do. 
It has them doing something I feel no inspiration to do. It has them doing something that if I have any role as a teacher, nurturer, I would encourage people not to do. It not only has them doing it, but it seems to be lauding them for doing it and setting them up as exemplars. And I, I, I just think it's a two-step backward for us. The worst thing about the Christian church is what's considered by some to be the two-step backward parts. Others think are the three-step forward part, right? Everybody agrees. I mean, Church of Christ, Baptist, Methodist, Assembly of God, we all agree there are three-step forward, two steps backward. What we don't agree on is which or which, which, right? Everybody's like, well, we need to keep the primary things primary and let the secondary tertiary things be secondary tertiary. Everybody believes that. We just disagree on what are the primary, secondary, and tertiary things. But this, for me, has Paul seeking out someone who is called a worshiper of God, not a worshiper of false gods, not small g. Paul is seeking out a worshiper of God from another faith tradition, in this case Judaism, and he's seeking their conversion. And that doesn't resonate with me anymore. It was once, not three steps, it was once the archetype of what it meant to step forward. But I want to ask you, because maybe I'm the only one, I don't think I'm the only one. How long has it been since you, with measured intentionality, went to a place you knew adherents of another faith tradition were conducting a service in their faith in their faith tradition and you went into their place of worship while they were praying and doing their holy thing how long has it been since you went to that place not to appreciate with an open-minded open-hearted interfaith sensibility but you went with the specific intent to engage and convert them to your faith tradition of Christianity and to straighten them out and help them. Is that what y'all are doing on fifth Sunday next week? <laughs> Evangelical SWAT teams swooping in <laughs> under the cover of helping people only to buy the right to really straighten them out and get them saved? I hope not. I know not. Sit with that for a moment. How long has it been, if ever, that you've done something like that? And yet with all that said, as is the case with the lectionary and why I believe our book is sacred, as much as I was chagrined by the text immediately, after sitting with the text for a couple of weeks, I think it is an important text to process. I think the two-step backward stuff is really important for us, maybe as important, sometimes more than the three-step forward. Now, the reason I think this text, at least is a fine text, and one that deserves my engagement, our engagement, is a reason that it shares with a text just a few chapters earlier. You guys have been moving through the book of Acts, so you know this is Acts 16. 
Six chapters earlier, chapter 10, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, has a vision. Paul has a dream. Peter had a vision. His vision was of a sheet let down with all kinds of unclean animals in it, per Levitical Jewish code. And the voice says, rise, kill, and eat. Peter then, assuming that that voice is the angel of the Lord or the Lord himself, assuming that, Peter then tries to give God a Bible study on why he couldn't do this. And I'm going to say this about that. For years, I made that little quip thinking that it was because Peter had read the text wrong. No, no, no. Peter was right on the text. The vision that God gave Peter did contradict the text. On the textual level, Peter was the guy who got it right, not whoever it was on the divine side sending the dream. The fact, that's, that's very important because if this was simply a matter of misinterpretation, God said this dream fulfills what that text really intended, but that's not the case. The dream contradicted what the text said, but it doesn't mean the text was wrong. It means the text was time-bound. In other words, the text had a point of diminishing return, as do all sacred texts. There is a point where adherence, benefit, benefit, as you move across the x-axis, across the x-axis of adherence, on the y-axis of benefit, you go up. But you take too much vitamin D. And there's a point of diminishing return. And Christians like to admit that between what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament, which in itself is a bit of a diminishing of the text, as opposed to the reality that the divine messaging of God comes to us in ways that are frail and imperfect and through mediums that are time-bound. This text a few chapters earlier that I think Acts 16 resonates with, Eugene Peterson's The Message describes it this way in chapter 11. After Peter shared the gospel with the Gentiles at the behest of God in that dream, that was the deal. Peter said, I can't share the gospel with Gentiles because they're unclean. God said, don't call things unclean that I've called clean. Peter's not a rogue. He doesn't do what God tells him to do, at least in his heart, and then turn away from Jerusalem and the central authorities. He's a part of a denomination. He's a part of a group of people. He's not a rebel without a cause. He's a dissident willing to submit himself and take whatever injury, whatever injury comes from the whole. He doesn't go to Jerusalem and say, well, I'll tell you this. God told me I don't care what you say, James, even if you are the brother of Jesus. He doesn't say that. He does what he feels called to do. And then an equally important part is he submits himself to his brothers and says, I know you disagree. I know you might pull my ordination. I know this might impact my retirement. But I love you guys, and I knew what I signed up for when I signed up with a group of imperfect people like me. And it just might be that my willingness to incur cost in a faith tradition 
that follows one who said from time to time you might have to pick up a cross and you might have to fill up in your body the sufferings of Jesus which were incomplete. Where do we in the West ever, I say, I said to seven United Methodist ministers last week in Salt Lake City that I met with privately, you may never have a chance the rest of your life in the West to do anything that even remotely resembles or approximate filling up in your body the sufferings of Jesus which are incomplete. Taking up anything that even possibly looks like a cross. Peter set before his brothers in Jerusalem. Acts 11 says, the news traveled fast. And in no time, the leaders and friends back in Jerusalem heard what Peter had done. They heard that Peter and the others had shared the gospel with Cornelius' household. They heard how the non-Jewish outsiders, the Gentiles, were now claiming to be in. So when Peter got back to Jerusalem, his associates, concerned about these things, called him on the carpet and said, What do you think you're doing rubbing shoulders with that crowd, eating prohibited foods with prohibited people, and ruining the church's good name? This is not pre-Pentecost. This is post-Pentecost, full of the Holy Spirit. And this is the brother of Jesus who's the main guy talking. In that text, you don't see it easily in Acts 16. But in Acts 11, man, this is just an underhanded pitch for those of us that are fighting for inclusion and trying to move the church to a broader place. It's just, this, this is why... If you let me, I'd, I'd just wear this text out once every two months in sermons. Because in the Acts 11 text, we can look back reflectively and say, man, they were wrong. I'm really glad that the Bible doesn't whitewash the story, doesn't gloss it over, but it puts the two steps. We don't have to wait to indulgences and slavery. We don't have to wait 19 centuries to understand that the church is born of frailty. It has fissures, flaws within. It has the capacity to be gravely wrong, and it equally has the capacity to be repentant. That's why at Grace Point, the church that I've served the last 20 years in Nashville, we quit calling ourselves welcoming. We quit calling ourselves inclusive. We quit calling ourselves affirming of LGBTQ people. We quit saying that we've invited them now to the table because all of that stuff is grossly self-congratulating. We are not affirming and welcoming. We are repentant. We didn't invite anybody to the table. We finally joined them there. Because if there is any way to read the text, it's to know that Jesus has always been with those who were wrongly rejected. Acts 11 is a wonderful story. Because Peter doesn't fight back to this. He humbly, because a soft answer turns away wrath. He's not there for a fight. He's not that personality that walks up and says, this is a private fighter, can anybody join? He's a nine on the Enneagram. <laughs> He's a peacemaker. And he looks at James and says, I know, I argued the same thing. And I don't know what to tell you, except I, I know what I saw. 
Every other time that I shared the gospel, people believed and I baptized them. When they come up out of the water, the Holy Spirit falls on them. But I couldn't baptize them. I just couldn't bring myself to baptize them. And the Holy Spirit was circling, headed on autopilot. The longer I preached, just kept circling until he couldn't wait on me to open the waters of baptism. And he fell on them. And I saw them just like us in the beginning as the Holy Spirit was poured out. And I looked around at my traveling companions and said, how can we continue to forbid them water? They were forbidding them the waters of baptism. Peter said, how can we justify this doctrine of forbiddance when I've watched the Holy Spirit pour out on these people? To his credit, James, the brother of Jesus, does not fight back and say, well, I'll tell you, Amos 9 says. He realizes that Christianity is incarnational. As Parker Palmer said, it is sad that a religion supposedly vested in the idea of incarnation so often gets lost in abstract and disembodied concepts. Our history is that reform never rolls down from the ivory tower. It rises up out of the pew. It rises up out of the experience of the body of Christ. And namely, it rises up out of the suffering of the body. Those experiences well up until they cannot be dismissed. And the wise church does not either dismiss and jettison the text, but it allows with a humility to be, it allows us to be driven back to the text saying, through the lens of this new experience, have we read the Bible most faithfully today? That is the history of the church. And Acts 11 through 15, let me just put a bow on this. Acts 11 through 15 beautifully shows the church getting it wrong facing the reality and humbly, thankfully being corrected. Acts 16, not coincidentally, in the beautiful devotional rhythm of the psalm, Psalm 21, 22, and 23, naive, certain orientation, discombobulated, troubled disorientation, humble, peace-seeking reorientation, Acts 11 through 15, 10 through 15, Jace, tells the story of wrong and correction. Acts 16 opens with Paul. You want curiosity? Paul has just been declared to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul has just gotten his way. The church has figured things out. And Paul now has been sent from the Acts 15 council to the Gentiles. And you know, the first thing that happens to him as he's ministering to the Gentiles, his commission makes sense. The Spirit forbids him and calls him across to Europe, Macedon, Philip of Macedon, that famed area in northern Greece. Calls him across to Europe to a city, Philippi, filled with Gentiles and so few Jews that there wasn't even a justifiable number for a physical synagogue. But no, the apostle to the Gentiles doesn't speak to that vast majority of Gentiles. He feels like finding some of his Jewish family and preaching the gospel to them 
and baptizing them and helping them become Christian. So here's what I want to say about that. If that is how the story is to be properly read, that Paul and his companions are a desirable example of what Christians are supposed to do. Seek out, single out, and convert Jews and Muslims and Hindus. If Paul and his companions are indeed, by way of their actions in Philippi, saying we as Christians, if, if, the, if Paul in Acts 16 is saying that we as Christians have as our ultimate mandate the proselytization of Jewish people or people from other traditions, worshipers of God, then here's the big one. Then I believe Acts 16, the story of Lydia's claimed conversion, finds itself in a new category. Because it's not only in the category of getting something wrong, it's in a new category because Acts 10 and 11 gets it right by Acts 15. Acts 16 doesn't get it right yet. Now I got to tell you, I love when we as Christians get something wrong and then by the time the chapter or book of the Bible is up, or at least the whole Bible is up, we've gotten it right. But there are some things in the Bible that the book closes, the last apostle dies, the creeds are written, the text is canonized, and the church builds an empire, and we still haven't got them right. And I would propose this is one of them, if that's the way you're going to read the text. And it's in ignoble company because it joins slavery, women's roles, distribution of wealth, eschatology and the end times, gender and sexual orientation binaries. It joins a whole host of other subjects that I'm telling you the church didn't, clean, didn't get cleaned up by the end of the first century. And it didn't get cleaned up by the time the perfect law of liberty was concluded with the 27 books canonized and Athanasius by 365 said these are the 27. This joins, this joins a long record of the church getting some things wrong, not being fully matured, and not coming to that place of completion in God's love yet and that position as troubling as it might be for some folk to take about the Bible that admission that some of the two steps backward stuff didn't get cleared up by a final fell swoop of three steps by the time Revelation was finished the fact that the book concludes and we could find ourselves in the 19th century with 95% of religious leaders full of the Holy Spirit defending the institution of chattel slavery. The fact that we could end up in the 21st century with the amount of science and enlightenment we have 
and still be sending messages to 13-year-old queer children that makes them not want to live in spite of how much they love Jesus. The fact that we could still, as a Christian church, by the end of the 21st century, to a vast majority, be saying that women cannot lead in the church because they are generally deep dispos- are, are predisposed to emotional frailty that renders them dangerous in offices, trenches, and pulpits. There is a long list of issues that Acts 16, if it is a mistake not corrected by the time the book closes, it joins a large host of other mistakes. So my capacity to be able to read the Bible and admit the two steps backward part and admit that it's not fully cleaned up. Every time somebody looks at me as they did last week, and says, I hear what you're saying, Stan, but on this gay thing, the Bible is clear. I always say, okay, maybe it is. Maybe it's clear that those animals in that sheet that you're telling me to eat, Leviticus 23 says they are unclean. Maybe it's clear. That stuff I just said about women, listen, 1 Timothy 2, I do not allow a woman to teach, nor to take any position of authority over a man. You know why? Has nothing to do with Sam's, with, with Sam's ability to speak, with Sam's insight. I want to tell you why Sam can't teach here. First Timothy 2. You want clear? You want clear about those gay kids? You want clear about slavery? How about First Timothy 2? Sam should not have taught what she taught two weeks ago here. And you know why? Because Adam was first formed, then Eve has nothing to do with sin, has nothing to do with the fall, has nothing to do with Mosaic law, has nothing to do with context in Austin. It goes all the way back, and the writer says, because Adam was first formed, then Eve. And then he really lets down his guard and allows you to see some of the worst two-step backward stuff in the entire Bible when he says, and furthermore, Adam was not deceived. Eve was. In other words, yes, they both sinned, but he sinned because he has a problem with women. There's words for that in Greek. He sinned because, well, you know, you know how men are. She sinned because she was deceived. In other words, built into the fabric of the female psyche is a frailty. Wink, wink. This is right there with about two to three days a week. You know, or two to three days a month. Thank God it's not two to three days a week, he would say. But two to three days a month, you just don't... You don't want them. You know how they are. It's gross, isn't it? You want to hear Peter's take on it? First Peter is a petrine denominational reinterpretation of Paul to try to get the cookies on the bottom shelf. Because 
Paul is considered to be thick and dense to understand. You want a double whammy? 1 Peter 3 about women is preceded by 1 Peter 2. Stan, it's clear. Romans 1's clear about homosexuality, okay? It's clear those animals in that sheet are unclean. You want clear? 1 Peter 2, the guy who preached on the day of Pentecost, walked on water. 1 Peter 2, slaves, be submissive to your masters. It's not done. It's going to make it more plain. Even if they beat you unjustifiably. Clear yet? I understand people who leave Christianity because of that stuff more than I understand people who try to make that the heart of Jesus. But I don't think either have to happen if we realize the sacred text is sacred because the Word of God comes through it. And it comes through it with nuance in context. But the sacred text is not the final constitutional end-all, be-all of all propositional, moral, and doctrinal truth. It is the spiritual travel diary of our religious ancestors as they wrestle with important matters. It doesn't give us final answers. It brings us into the right conversations. And the early church is not the archetype. It is the infant. And infants are precious, but you don't expect of infants what you expect of archetypes. And that little nuanced shift is faithful to our Jewish Christian tradition. And it provides great relief. Do you know how many people... What I just shared with you right there, every evangelical denomination employs that hermeneutic inconsistently and conveniently. When my evangelical friends, that's my world I come from. I come from as fundamentalist a world as you can come from. When they say, where did you come up with this interpretive lens, Stan? I say, from you. And I can show you ten places where you already use it. But you're using it inconsistently at best, and at worst, you're using it conveniently. And that's troubling. You want clear? Even if they beat you without cause. You want even clearer? For to this, slaves be submissive to your masters, even if they beat you without cause. For to this, you were called by Christ. Is that clear? I want to tell you what it is. It's clearly two steps backward. It is clearly the wounds and the fissures of a broken body. There was only one perfect body of Christ. The one since then, not so much. And Peter concludes, for to this you were called by Christ. And then the next words out of his mouth. Listen. Listen. Slaves, be submissive to your master, even if they beat you without cause. For to this you were called by Christ in the same way, you wives. In the same way, you wives. Be subjected to your husband. 
even if, and you cringe, surely to God, he's not going to say, even if he beats you without cause. And he didn't because he had the sensibilities to offer a euphemism because he couldn't quite bring himself to say that about women, though he could say that about slaves, as though slaves are somehow less. Oh, the hierarchies, the filters through which the Word of God tries to come to us. In the same way, you wives, I remember the women in my Pentecostal church growing up who came with black eyes and broken ribs and were lauded because they were hanging in there. Because in the same way you wives be submissive to your husbands, even if they are disobedient to the word, there's the euphemism, even if they're disobedient to the word, for in doing so you may win them when they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. For Christ left us an example who when reviled, reviled not again and saved the people who tortured him by the blood that came from the wounds they exacted. And when Sister Butler stood up with that black eye, we gathered around, laid hands on her and prayed and sent her right back to be crucified again, hoping that somehow through her wounds... If the church doesn't get the two steps back part of the text right, it needs to shut down and this needs to turn into hospice palliative care because there's not another woman that deserves to be abused, not another gay child that deserves to feel like they want to die. Oh. There's so much more to say about all that. But sometime, as the old prophet Kenny Rogers said, you got to know when to hold up. <laughs> so here's, here's what I want to say. Acts 16 strategically follows Acts 15. Because there are some things we've gotten wrong that we corrected quickly. There are also some things we've gotten wrong Acts 11, we corrected in two years. Acts 16, we're still working on it 2,000 years later. You say, surely not. I mean, 2,000 years? God didn't change God's mind on chattel slavery in the 19th century. God didn't change God's mind on women leaders and pastors and presidents in the 20th or 21st century. We're reading the text more faithfully and we're discerning where is the three steps forward and where is the two steps backward and we're living in the one of net. And sometime in the more fundamentalist settings, we're living in a negative one. And the two steps forward, three steps backward Christian church just needs to go away. It's no wonder that this week dealing with this text that I didn't want to deal with follows last week when I heard a Macedonian call and it wasn't to get people corrected I, sp I can't even explain it to you I spent last weekend in Salt Lake City with hundreds 
of disoriented, deconstructed, LDS, Mormon people who love Jesus, believe in God, want the afterlife to be okay, but don't know about Joseph Smith and holy underwear or any of it anymore. And you know why? Not because one of the bishops or apostle has come with a new revelation, but because they had a queer child. And I sat last week and listened to a woman describe how her father, as the patriarch of their Mormon family, told her because of the way she's treating her teenage gay child and telling them they're still a Christian, she is, and the, she is messing up the celestial afterlife and the levels they're going to be on. You think that sounds crazy? Well, two days ago, I sat with a lovely man, my father, who still worries my children are going to be eaten by worms and burn forever. Because I believe same gender love is as blessed by God as heterosexual love. You think holy underwear is weird? You think we don't have our mythologies? Do I need to name them? But you know what? And this is what I want to say, and, and it's the best I can kind of come up with a net. I've spent all week with Mormon parents, lovers of Jesus, believers in God, who can't go back to the ward. They don't know how to process. They're, they're studying about Joseph Smith and thinking he's not as great a guy as they thought he was. They're just all over the place. Some of them are still going to the ward in spite of what the ward's doing to their children. Some are saying, you're compromising your child's life. And they're saying, but where do we go? And they turned to a non-LDS minister and brought me in. And the net effect of the week was all week this week, I've been getting them with holy perplexity writing to me and saying, that was one of the top spiritual experiences of my life. And I am still trying to reconcile doctrinally how I could feel God in a setting facilitated by a non-Mormon. And I remember as a United Pentecostal little boy, Jace, when I was in the first assembly of God's service and I felt the Holy Ghost, I looked up indignant and said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and then I remember feeling it in a Baptist church, in a Methodist church. Then I remember feeling it at an Aretha Franklin concert. <laughs> and I quit trying to convert Aretha, the Baptist, or the assembly of God. And last week, I was in a holy moment where I never thought I would be with some of the most precious people in the world, and the crucified Christ was their 14-year-old child. And I thought as I left there, what a lovely thing. This is so much better than us exchanging Saturday mornings on one another's doorstep trying to convert one another. That's the three-step forward essence of what Acts 16 is trying to say when we finally get it right. Amen? Amen? All right, there you go.